0: To see how he has formed the world, what he is doing in the world, and so that you will trust him. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, the Bible teaches us there that what God is doing in this world is a mystery that he made known to us. New Testament believers, and that mystery of what God is doing is this. He is uniting all things in Christ, who will be king forever, whose kingdom will have no end. That's what God's doing. And so because that's what God's doing, what he wants from you and what he wants from me is for us to trust him. So would you imagine with me for a moment if God's purpose in giving us his word is so that you and I would trust him. What do you believe the enemy of God is doing in your life and in the life of this church? It's the exact thing that the enemy of God was doing in Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 1. He is trying to draw us away from trusting God. This morning, I want you to know that your trust and my trust in God is rooted in our affections. It starts at the level of our heart. What do we love? What do we fear? What do we desire? Our trust is rooted in our affections And it's displayed in my actions. My trust, my faith, my belief is rooted in my affections, what I love, fear, and desire, and it's displayed in my actions. Now, why is it important for us to know about trust? Well, I've just told you. First, because God wants you to trust Him. Secondly, Because I can say I believe or trust Jesus as my Savior, but that not necessarily be saving faith. Billy Graham says that he believes somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of people's names, people whose names are on church rolls in America are really lost. 75%. That means there are a lot of people who have said, I trust Jesus, but it's not really saving faith. Let me give it to you this way. Perhaps I could say a prayer repeated after a pastor somewhere in my life called the sinner's prayer and my salvation not be real because my trust is in my checking off a list of things to do. Pastor, I've got that one taken care of. I said the prayer. I'm good. You could say the same thing about baptism or church attendance or being good in your life. I'm good with God because I've been baptized. I'm good with God because I go to church. I'm good with God because I'm a good person. And friends, that kind of trust, if it's only that, is not saving faith. So let me go back to my statement. My trust is rooted in my affection. So I have to ask, what do I love for your desire? And it's displayed in my behavior. So I have to ask, what does the actions of my life show that I trust? You say, well, Pastor, if I pray a prayer, then that's an action in my life. Oh, yes, but it's more than one action. You see, you can put on one action at any time. And this text is going to play that out for us. Let me say to in the way the Israelites, in this story that you just read, how it would be for them. Many, if not every, Israelite standing in Kadesh Barnea, looking north to the promised land, every one of them would say this, Yahweh is the God of Israel. They would confess that with their mouth. Yahweh is the God of Israel. But in this text, when the God of Israel, who they claim as their God, says, go in and take possession of the land, they refuse to obey. What does that mean? It means they don't trust Him. So friends, this morning, just because you prayed a prayer... Names on a church roll, you're in a church on a Sunday morning, praise the Lord you are, but none of that means that your life is playing out that you really trust the Lord. It's not less than that, it's more than being here, it's more than being baptized. It is that my belief is shown in the way that I live every day. They didn't obey God when He commanded because they didn't trust Him. You see, obedience to God's command, listen to this, obedience to God's command is the clearest indication of your trust in God. Jesus will say this in John chapter 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, obey my words. If you love me, keep my sayings. He says it three times like that. The passage today before us is about faith and trust. Believing God, listen, enough to obey even when you can't see how you can do what He says to do. Let's be clear. The enemy before the people of Israel is a formidable enemy. There are two generations addressed in the text before us. Moses is recounting a story. He's in his farewell address and he's recounting a story about the first generation of Israelites that God delivered from Israel. He's telling this this story to the second generation. The ones who were just children in this first, when they came out of Egypt, the ones that were just children are now standing at the edge of the promised land again. The first generation stands there 11 days journey from Mount Sinai. They've met with God. They've walked 11 days. They're looking at the promised land and they disobey. 40 years in the wilderness has passed. A second generation of Israelites are standing on the eastern side of the promised land, looking across the Jordan River, looking down on Jericho. And Moses is saying, Don't make the mistake of your parents. Obey God, trust God. Take the land. He has given it to you. Now take it. And the warning in the passage before us today to the second generation of Israelites is the warning that comes to you and comes to me. And it is this unbelief that leads to disobedience is fatal in the life of God's people. It reveals a heart that doesn't obey or excuse me that doesn't trust God. And this text is going to make that point for us. In the way that we see this text, let me set it up like this for you. God has brought you and I to the edge of the promised land. We've seen Jesus as king. We've seen his life on the earth and what that means. When Jesus is around, there is no disease. There is no disaster. There is no death because he overcomes every effect of of the fall. This is our king, and he will be king forever. He has come to the earth. We have seen the results of Jesus' kingdom, and then Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now you spread the news of the kingdom. Go make disciples. He's given us a command as we've glimpsed the promised land, and you and I have a mission just like the people of God had a mission standing on the edge of the promised land. And the question today is, do you trust God? It's the same question that was the question of the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And the reality this morning is you and I struggle just as they did with unbelief. We struggle with unbelief. Let me tell you where we're going this morning. At the end of our sermon, I'm going to give you three characteristics of unbelief. And at the end of our sermon, my hope is that believers in this room would get before God, bow our hearts and our heads before the Lord, and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And if you've never trusted the Lord as your Savior, you would get on your knees before the Lord and cry out to Him and say, Lord, save me, I believe. Perhaps for the very first time, your heart turned to the Lord that you would trust Him. So let's look at it together. Three characteristics of unbelief in your life and in mine. Three characteristics. Here we go. Number one, unbelief distorts everything. Unbelief distorts everything. Eleven-day journey. Bible says in verse 19, "...through a great and terrifying wilderness." They come into the hill country, the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us, Moses said. And then look down at verse 21 with me. The Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Moses knows that the people are standing on the edge of the promised land in Kadesh Barnea and that they will struggle with fear. He knows that the people, second generation, are standing in the plains of Moab, looking down on a fortified city, and he's about to tell them, go in, take possession of the land, just like God told the first generation, go in and take possession of the land. And he knows they will struggle with fear. They're looking at a fortified city called Jericho. They know that the enemy before them is formidable. They know that on their own they cannot take Jericho. Jericho. And so what happens? Unbelief distorts our fears. You see, the question is, what do we fear? Is our fear turned toward the enemy and the situation before us, the challenge before us? Or rather, is our fear turned toward the Lord? I've told you before, church, and I'll tell you again, fear and faith have an inverse proportional relationship. That is a very Weird term to say, as your faith grows, your fear of your situation will shrink. But as your fear of your situation and doing what God has called you to do grows, your faith in God will shrink. They cannot both go up or down together. You are either a person that is believing, trusting the Lord who says, go in, take the land, I've given it to you. He's going to say further in this passage, you already heard it read, I'm going before you and will fight for you. You either trust God or you're afraid of your situation. You're afraid to do what God has clearly told you to do. Friends, fear, excuse me, unbelief will distort what you are afraid of. Some of you are sitting in here at this place this morning and Moses' words to the people in verse 21, do not fear or be dismayed, needs to ring in your ears as you go to your job the next morning, as you go to your home this afternoon, as you live in your community. You need to hear God saying, do not fear. I've got this. You see, our God is sovereign and He's given you a mission and He has a purpose for your life. And He's saying to you, I have declared the end from the beginning, trust me. And yet you and I get gripped by our fears and paralyzed because fear has distorted our view. Friends, unbelief, not trusting the Lord will distort your fears. What are you afraid of today? Is it distorted? Are you more afraid of the one who created everything? Are you more afraid of your situation? Jesus said it this way, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. Trust me. Do what I've told you to do in life. Unbelief will distort our fears. Secondly, in verse 25, unbelief distorts our understanding. So you heard the text read, they send spies into the land, they brought back fruit from the land, and they say to uh, the people, it is a good land. This story, by the way, is recorded for us back in Numbers 13 and 14 when the first generation go in, and what you'll find there is they come back and report that the land is a great land flowing with milk and honey. You've heard that phrase, no doubt. It comes from these spies who first go into the land promised to Abraham, and they come back and say the promised land is a land flowing with milk and honey. Praise God. It's a good land. As a matter of fact, you'll read there in Numbers 13 and 14 that they bring some fruit back from the land. And the cluster of grapes that they bring back is so large that two men have to hold it on a pole between their two shoulders. So they're walking forward and backward, pole on their shoulders... Cluster of grapes hanging between it. They say, this is a good land. As a matter of fact, you read in the text, they went into the valley of Eshkol. Eshkol just means cluster. That's what it's named after to this day. That the Lord named it that because the cluster came from that valley of grapes. It is a good land, but their understanding is distorted. You know because you've read the text, they're not going to go into the land. So look at verse 25. The very 12 spies that go into the land say these words. Here's the word they bring back. End of verse 25. It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Did you get that? I read that over and over in my life and I've always focused on it's a good land. That's what I've just told you. Look at the last words that the Lord our God is giving us. How distorted could your understanding be for you to come back to your people and say, this is the land that God is giving us, let's don't go in. We can't take it. There are some of you right now that are sitting in here and your trust has been so twisted away from the Lord, trusting that He is holding your very life, this day, your breath, your job, your marriage, everything in you, and you're so distorted. You could sit here and tell somebody beside you, boy, life is so good, God is so good to me, and you're questioning God in your own prayer life. These men saw how good it was and they say, the Lord is giving us the land, we can't take it. Don't go in. Sometimes our mouths say something that we know we ought to say and our minds will not let us follow after what we say we believe. Our understanding is distorted. Friends, unbelief will distort your understanding such that you can say, oh, I know God's in control. I just don't think he controls my life. I just don't think he's in control of this situation. I just don't think he knows what's going on. You know, if God knew, maybe. But he probably doesn't know this. Our understanding is distorted, just like theirs. Such that, verse 26, yet you would not go up but rebelled. That's distorted understanding. Number three, unbelief distorts our perception. Not only our understanding, but our perception. Incredible verses. Verse 27. So you murmured, Moses says, so the people murmured in your tents and you said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt. What? Do you remember Egypt? Do you remember slavery? Friends, there are people that I've talked to that believe what God is doing to them right now is God is hating them. There are people that I've talked to in this community, some of them in this church, that say, my life was so much easier and so much simpler before I came to know the Lord. Why does God hate me so much, Pastor? Their perception of what God has done is distorted. God delivered you from the eternal punishment, wrath, of a holy God because he put all of that wrath on his son and he's delivered you and forgiven you of sin. And now you're saying, God, how could you do this to us? How could you promise me life eternal and then give me life right now that is so bad? Lord, my life is so hard right now. Why do you hate me like you do, God? And God says, I've given you eternal life. I've given you forever. I've given you a royal adoption into the kingdom that will last forever. And we often, because of our unbelief, because we refuse to trust God right now, we start fearing our circumstances and we'll look at God and say, how could you do this to me right now, Lord? How could you bring me here? That's what Moses is saying. Our unbelief, our lack of trust in God will distort our perception such that just like the Israelites, we'll think what God did in love, delivering us from sin sin and slavery... He did it to hate us. They say, God, we were better off in Egypt. Why did you hate us so much to bring us out of Egypt? And they believe. Here's the other distortion. The end of verse 28. They believe that God did this to destroy them. Sorry, the end of verse 27. So that you could give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. So where are we going up? It distorts our perception. Number four. Unbelief distorts our ability to hear godly counsel. Moses hears this in verse 29. He tries to correct them. He says this, do not be in dread or afraid of them. Again, he says, do not fear them. Listen to this, verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. Friends, if you're in the midst of unbelief today, if you are struggling right now with trusting our God. Let me remind you, believer, listen to me carefully. Come in close for a minute and listen to this. God did not wake up today to hear your prayer and all of a sudden say, boy, I'm glad you told me that was going on in your life because I didn't know it. God knows every detail of your life. We sing a song here at Poplar Spring called Christ Be All Around Me. Friends, it comes partially from this verse. Moses says, Do not be afraid. God, the one who brought you out of Egypt, He goes before you to fight for you. Not for those folks out there. Listen to me, church. This is for you today. This isn't about the Israelites. This is about us. God Goes before you to fight for you. This is our God. Trust Him. Trust Him. Believe Him. The one who sent his one and only son. His love was shown for you at the cross in a display that is unthinkable, unimaginable. And yet, you and I come to this point today and very often we still struggle with unbelief. And we say, God, why did you do this to me? I can't go on. I can't understand what's going on in my life. And the Lord says, I'm before you. I'm around you. I'm under you. I'm above you. I'm behind you. Trust me, I'm not surprised by what's going on. Friends, but when you and I are in unbelief, it distorts our ability to hear that godly counsel. You ever been in a place, I've been here. Is the reason I'm going to say this to you. You ever been in a place where you were able to tell somebody else, the Lord knows. The Lord is not surprised by what's going on in your life. And then you go into your own prayer closet and you say, Lord, where are you? are times that I've encouraged other people with the encouragement that I needed because my unbelief has distorted my ability to hear godly counsel. Friends, know that that is the distortion of unbelief. Number five, unbelief distorts everything. The fifth thing it distorts, it distorts our memory. Friends, how quickly we forget. Church, how quickly. I, I I say we. Let me, just, let me just put me on the line here. How quickly your pastor forgets. When things in my life go wrong, I just dive all into that situation and say, God, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? How are we going to get a, I've got to control this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And it's like the Lord just says, slow down. Do you remember how I've worked in your life for these years, these decades? I'm still here. I hadn't left you. I hadn't brought you to this point just to drop you. Look at what Moses says to the people. The Lord goes before you. This is verse 30. The Lord goes before you and will himself fight for you just as he did in Egypt. Do you remember Egypt when they wouldn't let you go? And I sent the ten plagues and Pharaoh said, get out and take everything you want to take with you. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you were at the Red Sea and you thought, man, we're going to die out here in the wilderness, and I just parted the waters and you walked through on dry land? Do you remember that? I was at work. I did that. Do you remember when you got through and, and Pharaoh and his army were putting themselves up as gods and I just let the water go and they all died? Do you remember that? That was me. I worked in your life unbelief will distort your memory such that you will not look back and see how God has worked. The image as he goes on in verse 31 is incredible. Not only with Egypt, he says, and in the wilderness. You remember when you didn't have water and you asked me and I said, well, here's this rock. Moses hit that rock and I gave you water. You remember when you were complaining you didn't have food and you wanted meat and and you didn't have food at first and I gave you manna and then you wanted meat and I sent all these doves and they just showed up on your doorstep and you ate meat? Do you remember that? Look at the image in, in verse 31. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Friends, Do not let unbelief distort your memory. If you cannot look back on your life and see how God has carried you, then call me because I can give you testimony after testimony after testimony in my life and in the lives of those sitting around you in this place, how we know God has carried us as a father carries his son. Don't let unbelief distort your memory, church, because it will. Verse 32 Yet, in spite of this, you did not believe the Lord. Friends, the question is, will you believe the Lord? Do you trust Him? Unbelief distorts everything. Secondly, beginning in verse 34, and we'll pick up the speed here. Unbelief in my life delivers consequences. It distorts everything, but it delivers consequences. Church, our God who is slow to anger will not and cannot overlook unbelief and sin. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. The apostle Paul says it this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap. Numbers chapter 32. Just a few chapters before this, God is challenging one of the tribes and he says to them, If you will not obey me, be sure your sins will find you out if my grandmother repeated that to me one time, she repeated it to me a hundred times. Stephen, I don't know what you're doing, but be sure your sins will find you out. Friends, I found it to be true in my life. Unbelief delivers consequences in our lives. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow in this life. For the people, look at verse 35. Here's God's anger poured out against them. Here's the consequence. Verse 35 Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. In other words, what he goes on to say is every man by over the age of 20 years old will die in the wilderness. You're not going to go in, you're going to die. Why? Unbelief reaps consequences, sin has consequences. Friends, do not go out of this place not knowing that it does. But not only is it death, it's the desert, it's the wilderness. Look at verse 40. But as for you, he says, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Here's what you're going to get. You disobey God. You don't believe God. You don't trust me when I said go in. When I said I'll fight for you. Then here's what you get. 40 years in the wilderness and you're all going to die. What's he say to us? New Testament. This is a nation. What does he say to us in the New Testament? You don't believe me? You don't believe the gospel? You don't come and repent and believe Jesus is your substitute? Then here's the, here's the end. It's the end of all sin. It is eternal death. You see, the consequence of sin from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, it's all the same. Death is the result of of sin, And you and I have sinned, and so death will come. We live in a world where we know that death comes. We wonder, we have asked, how can we overcome death? Not only physical death, we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. We know our lives are not supposed to be cut short by death, cancer, disease, disaster. And God says... That's the result of the fallenness of the world because of the sin of man and death is here. But not only physical death, it's eternal death. And so death has come in. And so what do we say? I know, here's what I say as I read this text. Well, Lord, I have no hope because I am one who is guilty. I don't trust you like I need to. So is there any hope? Oh, there's hope in this passage. Between verse 35 and verse 40, there are two men that show us hope. Verse 36, you're all going to die, verse 36, except Caleb. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. This verse is why we named our firstborn son Caleb. Our prayer for him is, Lord, may he be a man who wholly follows the Lord. But what I know is there's no man living that is wholly followed the Lord. But there's hope, right? There's hope of this. So who is it? Look at the second one in verse 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him. Why? Look at this phrase. For he shall cause Israel to inherit it. I believe this is messianic. I believe it is pointing us toward Christ. Why? Because Jesus is named after Yeshua or Joshua here. He is the deliverer of us. That's why Joshua is named this. If you read back, Moses changed his name to Joshua, the deliverer. Under the instruction of God. Why? Because he shall cause Israel to inherit the land. He is pointing to one who is to come. Friends, if you can say with me this morning as you're standing sitting in this place... I have struggled with unbelief, then I want you to know there's hope because there is one who has come who has believed fully and his name is Jesus. And he has said to you, here's what I will do because God loves you. I will exchange all of my righteousness, all of my uh, goodness, everything that I am in holy following the Lord. I will put that on your account And I want to take your wickedness, your unbelief, and put it on my account, and I'll pay the price for that on the cross. And the price for that was death. This is what Jesus has done on our behalf. This is why you and I cry out to Him. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because, Lord, I believe that you have taken the penalty of all of my unbelief. Now, help me to come into this place where my obedience displays my belief. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he is the king forever. And my life is going to be conformed to his image. I will begin to obey. Not so that he will love me. Not so that I can get into the land. But because in Christ I'm already in. This is the gospel. This is what we are called to believe. And so friends know that unbelief delivers consequences. But for those of us in the New Testament, look, we know that the consequences of our unbelief have been placed upon Christ. And this verse before us even shows us that there's hope. Because Joshua will cause them, deliver them, cause them to go into the land. And that's what Jesus has done for you. Thirdly, if you will not follow and believe, there is a costly, costly danger. And the people of God in verses 41 and following show us that. So not only does unbelief distort everything and deliver consequences, thirdly, unbelief in my life disguises as obedience. Unbelief in my life often disguises as obedience. Look at what happens, in verse 41. Once the consequences are declared, they acknowledge their disobedience and sin, and then say, We ourselves will go up and fight. Do you remember with me back in verse 31? God says, I, I'm sorry, verse 30, I will go before you and I will fight for you. And the people now say, we ourselves will go up and fight. Friends, listen, this is at best, we could call this half obedience. At its face, it's really going to be disobedience. Continued rebellion that the people put before each other as obedience. Do you know that you can be sitting in here and feign or fake obedience to those in front of you? Oh, well, I go to church. I do good things. You can make other people feel like and believe that you're obedient. You, friend, can fool everybody around you. The one you can't fool is God. He knows your heart. He knows your affections. And so He knows today, do you trust me? And while you can lie to your spouse or your children or your parents or your pastor or anybody sitting around here, you cannot lie to God. And the question before every one of us that must be answered is simply this. Do you trust God? Very quickly, look at this text with me. After they say we will go up ourselves and fight God says in verse 42, say to them, do not, do not go up or fight. I don't know if you underline in your Bible, but these are the saddest words in our text. For I am not in your midst. Friends, the point of the scriptures from Genesis 1 all the way through, the desire of God's creation, the hope that we have as people is this, God, we need you. When Jesus comes, His name is Emmanuel, God with us. What you and I need is not a better plan of how to go about our lives or a seven steps to this or that. What you and I need is God in our midst. And when the people realize the consequence of their sin, some of you, when you realize that there is hell that is coming if I don't get saved, And you'll say, well, tell me the boxes to check. Give me a prayer to pray. Give me a formula so that I can get that right. And you don't believe, you don't trust, you just pray a formula. Oh, if it costs me going to church every week, then I'll go to church every week as long as I get that. If it costs me baptism, then I'll get wed and I'll I'll do whatever it takes. But you never in your life have trusted God. Trust in God means, God, if you say go take Jericho, this city that we cannot take just by blowing trumpets, then we're going. If you say go make disciples, then I'm going to leverage my job, my community, my recreation, I'm going to leverage everything in my life to go make disciples. Why? Because God said it and I trust Him. And so friends, don't in this moment let yourself walk out of this place faking obedience Disguising your obedience as belief when you do a few right things. Doing a few right things is not trusting God. Trusting God is on your face before the Lord saying, Lord, whatever, whenever, wherever, I belong to you. And you have given me a mission. You have a purpose in my life. And my life then is laid before you as if on an altar. I am a sacrifice. Do with me what you will. That's trust of God. It's not, God, I give you my Sunday mornings. It's not, I give you this moral thing that I know I need to give you. It is, God, I give you everything. I trust you. I have no doubt that there are people in this room right now that truth be told before God, you're struggling with unbelief. So I'd say two things and i close. Number one, believer, go back to the cross. Go back to when you know God delivered me from sin and death and He promised me eternal life. And cry out to our God, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. And then begin to take steps toward what you know God has said to you. Here's the promised land. Now make disciples. Spread my kingdom. That's trust. It's rooted in my affections, displayed in my actions. Trust Him. If you've never come to a place in this place this morning, second thing I want to say, if you've never come to trust Christ, and you'll say, you know, Pastor, I've never trusted Christ with everything. Oh, I've I've prayed a prayer. I might have walked an aisle, but I know, truth be told today, if you knew my heart, Pastor, if it was told before all of these people, what I really know is I've never trusted Him. I've wanted to but I've never just surrendered everything that I am, then I want to invite you to do that this day. Today is the day of salvation for you. Trust Him. Lord, everything, it's yours. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to stand. We're going to sing in just a moment. I want to ask you, would you take these moments to really expose your heart before the Lord and say, Lord, do I trust you? I mean, do I really trust you? Not, would I tell my pastor or my Sunday school teacher or even my spouse? Not, would I tell them I trust you? Do I trust you? And if you don't, you better be responding, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, or Lord, I repent, save me. I believe, I believe.